0: Me that in here, knowing I'm the only Jew in this room.
1: <laughs> Are you
0: trying to get me killed? <laughs> if it makes you feel better, like I vote in New York, my vote doesn't matter there. It doesn't, it doesn't matter
2: here either. It doesn't matter. Guys,
0: so I, guys vote everybody vote for whoever you want to vote. I don't I don't care who you voted for. I'm just happy we're all here together. So you voted for Biden. Okay.
2: Huh. I don't know. Why yes, does it matter? It is.
1: Yeah, so what? Why's why does it
0: matter? I can just tell by your jokes you voted for Biden. Why are we talking? All right. about for I, I can tell by know. the fact that you're still talking when nobody wants you to that you voted for no The whole is having
3: me to stop talking. Yes, go under a sign Calm Alright, make some noise if you want her to shut up. <laughs>
1: But I did ask if anybody had any questions. I didn't think it was. <laughs> that's on me.
2: That was on me for thinking I could have a human interaction with somebody. That's my fault. No, uh, look, I'm such an insecure person. Here, I'll tell you the. I'll tell you the rest of that bit, and then and then we'll move on. I'm so insecure. I went and got an
1: ID. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. No, come on, buddy. Are you fucking kidding me? Yo, yeah, I'm never coming Are you out with these people ever again. No. Yeah. Straight up? Yeah. <laughs> oh my favorite that that was that was the perfect uh the perfect
4: way to handle having a full beer can thrown at you on stage i I don't think you can improve on that
0: i salute that soldier on the front lines at uncle vinny's yes
4: (laughs) yes if you see her in real life you have to thank her for her service and uh and yeah uh, (laughs) <laughs> the Battle of Uncle Vinny's. She <laughs> should
0: get to board airplanes first. And
1: <laughs>
0: Yeah. I, I guess, yeah, that, I, I watched the clip a couple times, but that was the first time I heard somebody uh, who was, like, friends with the guy through the beer can go, like, this is the last time I'm coming out with this group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was it? That was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man.
4: I want to know, like, the whole narrative of all the straws leading up to that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. I need to know more about these people. We'll probably be hearing more from them because the club said that they're pressing charges. So uh, I I think there's going to be more to the story.
3: I wouldn't be surprised if they're, like, right-wing stars soon you know what i mean like yeah. persecuted because oh, yeah, so. they're not allowed you know for their beliefs and
1: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah ariel's blowing up because she had the beer can thrown at her and yeah the guy who threw the beer can also has a media appearances <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah he's,
0: he's gonna be on charlie kirk tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> if
4: he beats the rap he'll have his own show on Newsmax.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah that's, uh. that
4: sounds that sounds about right uh, like like it is i mean obviously it's like a, it's on one le- i mean it's very funny but like it's also on one level it's like kind of a nothing of an incident but on the other hand you can't kind of think um you know kind of kind of had that nagging thought that if the uh the politics were the other way around this uh you oh, know yeah a lot How much of people it would
0: blow up yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, news networks love love this stuff now. It's a woman being attacked. I mean, she she really got it made. She really, that was a great opportunity. I'm like, what do I need to do to provoke a crowd member to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, it's funny because I, of course, every comedian is talking about it now. And now there's some, like, Brooklyn comedians I was talking to yesterday who are like, well, what do you expect going out there on the road? <laughs> like their version of what were you wearing? Like <laughs> they're like you try to bring your New York material on the road, and this is what happens. Wait,
4: wait, and I love that on the road in this case means New Jersey.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, like, like
4: she could totally take the tra- like she did take the train home after that happened. <laughs>
0: She drove. She drove. Okay. She but, drove. Um, right, but yeah, she just I just wanted to fact check that joke. <laughs> okay. You did. Good. fact <laughs> check.
4: She didn't take the train. She could have. She she, uh, drove. she drove
1: home.
0: Yeah, and she yeah she was opening for like a very um, popular comedian on social media, and mm-hmm. it's really interesting seeing his audiences because like his jokes are just yeah they're kind of apolitical and like about his family. And Mm -hmm. I think he's, like, half Jewish, too. So, yeah, just a really hostile crowd.
3: Was... uh, Is the rest of her material... Was it actually political at all, do you know? No, she...
0: (laughs) No, not at all. Like, she was, like, talking about... Maybe she said something, like, pro-abortion. I can imagine that. But, Mm, yeah. yeah, she was, like, talking about getting an IUD inserted. Like, it was not... At all, the woman was like clearly looking for a fight, yeah. like, oh, I know who you voted for. I <laughs> could tell by the way you talked about your gynecologist, you know just, <laughs> like- just like
3: just the like overly Jewish way you talked about your vagina. I could tell yeah. that you were not a Trump voter, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I was trying fun. to imagine what the like pro-biden material would be you know well, like well, the, that always kills thing, right because like,
4: no. like the heckler was treated it as like this is a big gotcha you know how i'm gonna get you i'm gonna get you to admit that you voted for biden <laughs> yeah. uh which like so presumably she wasn't like doing like i don't know trump jokes you know in the set or sure. that wouldn't have been a, like a gotcha
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was like, she, she was clearly like trying to diffuse the moment and move on. And she didn't even want to get into politics. She's like, so I'm really insecure, <laughs> and like you know, which, uh, yeah, it's scary out there. Who, who's making these spaces not safe anymore? I don't know.
4: <laughs> well, you know, what's, um, even scarier is if you move from the last election in the United States, it's going to be a really good transition to uh, the election going on right now in uh, in Brazil. Um, yeah. We uh, we have uh, we have a clip here of uh, the incumbent in that election, uh, friend of the show Jair Bolsonaro, uh, and uh, in uh, in this clip uh, he's. Uh, you know, it's an older clip, but it's like sort of recently come to, you know, like people have been kind of bringing it back up again. It's, it's gotten a little bit more attention uh, as the, uh, as the election is, uh, is going on uh, down there. And um, in, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I could share it on my end. That's fine. So, um, so in the, uh, in the clip uh, he, uh, he makes a, uh, a surprising statement, I think we could say about uh you know like we're all I mean I salute being you know being open and, and adventurous about uh about different kinds of uh of like food that you might like go go to different places, go to different kinds of restaurants. You might be a little unsure about some of the stuff on the menu, but you know you just go for it and see how it is. Uh our man Jair takes that further. <laughs>
1: It is, is so funny.
0: Eu comecei a ver lá as mulheres índias passando com carregamento de banana nas costas, um bagador, e um índio passa passa limpando os dentes com capim. One of the best. And it's like who speaking of like taking jokes too seriously, like there the, there were no Indians who were like grilling their grandpa he was. Did, he just like probably took a joke too seriously and was like, "Oh, that's what you guys are having for dinner?" Yeah.
4: <laughs> so for, for the tiny minority of our audience that doesn't speak Portuguese, and uh, anybody in that tiny minority who doesn't have the computer in front of them as they're as they're uh, listening to this, or you know, it's on in the background or whatever, uh, in that clip, Bolsonaro is is very earnestly like he he uh, clearly thinks this is real. Was describes going to this indigenous village in uh, in Brazil, and seeing people uh, seeing some woman walk by with bananas, and somebody walk by with you know with a piece of grass. They use to clean his teeth, and uh, says they told him that they uh, they were uh, engaged in cannibalism. A guy just died, and they were going to uh, to cook and eat his body, and um, you know definitely the fact that Bolsonaro just thought like doesn't seem to have crossed his mind. They're pulling his leg. They was just like, yeah, yeah. okay, I guess like, what you guys do, huh? Like that definitely says something about him. but also it says something about him that his next thought was, okay, I'm in, let's do it. Uh, yeah.
0: I, and it was his staff that stopped him. They were like, <laughs> no, we have dinner reservations. <laughs> and like, I want, I wanted beef barbecue, not Indian barbecue. And <laughs> Brazilians love their barbecue. You could see how he got there right <laughs> uh but yeah that he he was and everybody's talking about the Jeffrey Dahmer special right now i i haven't seen it on netflix so i cannot make any references to it but i oh man and who knew that a world leader would use his stump to say <laughs> Yes, indeed, I would eat an Indian, but I has he no considered problem. other races? Um, <laughs> just an Indian? Is he just saying, you know, developing nature? Because uh, he did say it,
4: I'd eat an Indian. It
3: is a little weird that he didn't say. Even if I were just if I were in that situation, which is hard to imagine, I think I would say I would eat a human. I wouldn't specify. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't want to specify which race of human. Yeah, you eat. It makes right. it makes it weird. Makes it weird. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of presenting it as almost like a woke, like a woke thing. Like, you know, like, yeah. It's their culture.
0: I have to respect it. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. Not that it would come off weird at all. A modern
0: day (laughs) Herodotus. Really seeing, soaking in the different cultures.
4: (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in Brazil, um, You know, with the uh, right-wing paramilitaries down there, I would, I would, uh, I would hate to see what you know what's going to get thrown at you if you if you admit that you voted for Lula, you know, and uh, while you're while you're doing comedy.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah. They're just throwing knives. They're like, let's eat (laughs) them. Would be good on the grill.
3: I need a comedian.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I need a comedian. (laughs) That is, Uh, yeah, it's a slippery slope.
3: How's that? How's that? How's that going for him, Ben? It's uh, isn't the next round coming up? Coming up soon?
4: Uh, yeah, I think there are a couple more weeks. I'm not sure about yeah, that, yeah. that date, but uh,
0: October 30th, right?
4: October 30th. Okay, very good. Yeah, she knows her yeah. stuff. Uh, <laughs>
0: I read the article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did read the article. <laughs> I love that the indigenous is so. The the guardian reaches out to the indigenous people, and they're like, "Do you guys (laughs) eat your grandparents?" And they're like, "No, we don't do that." It could have been like a mistranslation too. Like the interpreter was just like, "Yeah, they're whatever they're eating. They're you know, grandpa. Who cares?" (laughs)
3: Um, I think ready
0: to clock out.
3: I think some yeah. So this article is interesting. I think. Maybe some of our left-wing candidates could learn to be as ruthless as this. Uh, It says a television advert produced by Bolsonaro's leftist rival, Lula, declared Bolsonaro has revealed that he would eat human flesh. (laughs) (laughs) I would love Bernie to to, to, to go that hard on somebody. I think, yeah, so this is like part of the oppo research, I see, that like came out. Okay, cool. (laughs)
0: Yeah, this is a, uh, yeah, it's not cool to eat the poor. We eat the rich only. <laughs> okay.
3: That's true. It's a different menu. Uh, Bolsonaro's communications minister called Lula's advert fake news. He yeah. claims the comments has been distorted. <laughs> yeah, you always know you're a good good
4: Position when you know, and it's like, well look, that was totally taken out of context when I said that I would eat human flesh. Like, you know, people people are being very unfair in how they're dredging yeah. this
3: back up. Yeah, Lula denies. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if only Dahmer had a chance to speak about the Netflix series, he'd be like,
1: yeah,
0: I feel like everything was taken out of context. <laughs>
3: Yeah, they um, try to
4: make everything so dramatic. It wasn't really like that. Yeah.
0: And
3: <laughs> yeah, this, this article is pretty gold. Uh, Lula Lula denied spreading misinformation. I saw the footage. It's no invention. We're simply letting people know what our opponent is like. He's claim he claimed foreigners were shutting Brazil for fear of the cannibal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: he's, he's trolling him so hard. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way, I'd argue. Yeah. I like it.
0: Um, that well, what, election is gonna be interesting.
4: It will, yeah. And and it will also be be interesting to see what happens um after the election, right? I mean, I'm assuming um, you know, I'm assuming that Lula will win, you know, he he did win the first round by several million votes. Um, and you know, I mean it's possible, but you know, like like that seems like the the thing that would happen. But I mean, I think there's a pretty serious question about what the um you know, what Bolsonaro and his supporters, um, would do otherwise. Right. You know, cause, cause this is, you know, this is a much more, um, you know, this isn't like, um, you know, this isn't like the U S where we have like right-wing paramilitaries, but they're kind of like a, a sad, weird joke, you know, that they're like, they'll get all the like proud boys together in the country and it's like 150 guys. Uh, and they don't really look like they could, they win a lot of fights, you know, that they, uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, there they actually have the the serious version of uh, that. So, like I would have met, you know, I would think their you know their January six could be much scarier than ours if it happened.
1: Oh,
0: absolutely! Yeah, they definitely will will bring the guns. Yeah, for sure.
4: Um, Well, I did want to uh, just uh, just hit uh, two more things before we uh, we bring on Matt Brunig for uh, for uh, the main uh, segment tonight. So um one of those is I uh, wanted to uh, I wanted to plug uh coming up in uh two weeks from yesterday uh so on the 23rd uh in Los Angeles uh we and this is revolution and left reckoning are doing a live show at the Terragram ballroom that's uh, seven pm l a time uh and uh it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be really good gonna have. Matt and David from Left Reckoning. Going to have Jason Miles and Deep State Cuba from uh, from TIR. Going to have Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila, Ryan Lake, Daniel Bestner. Uh, probably see um, Derek Farn. Probably a person or two I am uh, forgetting right now. Um, if uh, we we do want some uh, we do want some more uh, some more graphics to use to promote it. So if anybody uh, out there in the audience wants to, uh, wants to, uh, to come up with a DIY one, uh, we will, uh, we'll find some way to, uh, to reward that. Uh, we'll, uh, you know, if, if you person comes up with the best one, when we, uh, get around to, uh, to making some merch, you know, you can, you can get first pick maybe. Uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, but looking really looking forward to that link for, to get tickets to that, uh, is in the description for the episode. Uh, and speaking of that, Anna is going to be on, uh, next week. Uh, for the last episode before the live show, uh, to uh, to talk about uh, her debate with uh, with Dennis Prager, so that should be uh, that should be a lot of fun. Um, and um, and then there's going to be no episode that you know the day you know the Monday after the live show because it's gonna, I'm still going to be in Los Angeles. Could be David Griscom's birthday, so um, no episode that night. But there might be something really good coming up on the uh, the following. Uh, Monday, which is also Halloween, so stay tuned uh, on that. But the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, before Matt is something that happened um, on Thursday. So since uh, since we did the uh, since we did the last episode, um, Joe Biden uh, got around to uh, to reading uh, the uh, the article that I wrote over the summer for. Uh, for yeah. <laughs> Uh, called uh, "Why the Hell Isn't Biden Ending the uh, the Federal War on Cannabis?" So I'm glad to see that he's caught up on his reading, but uh, I would say that he is—he's maybe not. Um, you know, he maybe needs to reread it, uh, since if you look at the details of what he did, there is uh, unfortunately, and I mean, I, I really don't want to be the person who's like always the naysayer on this stuff. I actually. Um, you know, when the student loan thing came down, uh, you know, the original, like my suggested title for, for Jacobin was Joe Biden's student loan proof forgiveness is good, but not good enough. And I was actually like a little bit frustrated that they didn't include the good, but right. You know, part
1: yeah.
4: to be like one note negative, but in this case, I got to say, uh, I do feel pretty, uh, pretty one note negative about this because even though it is a tiny step in the right direction, uh, that, the people who did receive these pardons. Um, there are all kinds of ways that being pardoned could help them in terms of um, housing, employment, you know, federal student loans, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that.
0: They vote for Joe Biden. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there yeah, is hopefully
0: that. those six thousand people are just in Florida. <laughs> <you know? laughs>
4: yeah. Um yeah, although they although that means they can never do stand up comedy again unless they're yeah. Uh, full beer cans. But yeah. Uh, but like, it, it also, let's be really clear on this. It's not just that um, the overwhelming majority, you know, the people who this applies to, right? This, because it's not quite what he said in the campaign trail, or at least not what he always said in the campaign trail. There are times, to be fair, he did say a possession, but like, there are a bunch of times when he was campaigning for president, he said, anybody who's in federal prison for marijuana or even nonviolent crimes. He'd even use that phrase. And there are an awful lot, you know, like nobody who, um, this pardon applies to is actually still in prison in federal prison because yeah, the, the expression Jake is making is the appropriate one. When you first hear that, that that's confusing, right? Here's how this works. One the uh, overwhelming majority of people who are busted for for simple possession, which is the only thing the pardon applied to, uh, uh, go to state prisons. So there are, I think, about thirty thousand people around the country who are in prison in state prisons. Now, fair enough, president can't pardon them; that's beyond his authority. But also, um, because it's simple possession, and you know the the zeal uh, for uh, for for forcing the stuff is not what it once was. Um. Like there are thousands of people who are in uh, who are in federal prison for marijuana offenses, but none of them are in for simple possession, and it's it's all yeah. you know like at the very yeah, least. yeah. If like- you
0: have like more than a dime bag, it means that you're trying to sell weed, and so yeah, as de- decriminalization happens, they're just like increasing the amount of weed you can carry. So now in DC, you can carry like two ounces, and you. It that could be your personal stash, but any more than that, it's like, Nope, you're trying to sell. And who knows, maybe you're just, you know, preparing for a a big party.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you're about to have a party. Maybe you just like to, you know, it's like when I used to go to the liquor store during the pandemic, like lockdown part of the pandemic and it'd be like, all right, I don't want to go to the store again for a while, you know? So yeah. (laughs) yeah I
0: need the Costco version of weed, and i and the government is stopping you from that <laughs> that's yeah, what exactly. Americans love to do most is buy things in bulk, and we should be allowed to do that
4: <laughs> <laughs> definitely um so yeah there are there are a few thousand people who are who are in prison who had more than the uh the simple possession. Uh, allowable amount none of them are uh none of them are are getting out um and uh and some of these cases are are really bad i mean because you can um you know we're talking about like actually lots of you know cases Um, uh, you know standing music who i've talked about in the show before but like you know that's like one sort of interesting picturesque case but like there are, you know, tons of people who who are, you know, completely nonviolent, but you know, they just they just had too much weed or whatever. Perhaps even were are uh, busted trying to sell it, uh, which which yeah. I don't.
0: Think. Which who cares? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it happens in every middle school. <laughs> like, <laughs> get over it. But yeah, I mean, another part of the decriminalization thing. So weed is like Schedule One still. So it's nearly impossible to um, do like medical testing on it because the federal government needs to obtain its weed a certain way in order to do this testing. So it's like a catch 22 where you can't do the testing since it's schedule one and then uh, you can't legalize it because you don't have the tests that prove that it's benign on people.
4: Yeah, you can't have um, right, like yeah. I mean, legislatively, you you could if that was possible, but like you know, but yeah, given the way the law is set up right now, uh, it's very it's very difficult to uh, to for the uh, the federal government to go through the procedures that its current policy commits it to going through to uh, to take it off of Schedule One. So at the very goddamn least, you could let people out of prison, um, yeah. and so you know the um, you know, uh, it's kind of like sleepy, right? You know, sleepy Joe got up for a minute to go to the bathroom, but like he's kind of back to sleep now. And uh, I think it's a distinction that should be tracked.
0: Yeah, exactly. But it's a it's a teeny tiny step in the right direction. It's too exactly. bad, you know, that most of the government can not uh, smoke weed because they get random drug tests. So what we need is. Joe Biden smoking a blunt, and then he yeah, would be <laughs> will win yeah. over hearts and minds.
4: Uh, that that sounds like a 2005 comedy. I would have watched the uh, the quest yeah. to uh, to get the president to smoke with you. So fair enough. Um, <laughs> Naomi, where can people find your stuff?
0: Um, I'm Naomi Caravani on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I uh, will be. Um, at the cellar Wednesday, opening for Jim Norton at 7 p.m. And Friday, nice. I have a show in Gowanus at Halliards called Bitches Brew. You can check it out, Bitches Brew Comedy on Instagram. Very nice. All right. Thank you so for having fun. me. This is so much fun. All
4: right. Thank you. All right. So. We are now joined by the uh, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Matthew Brunig. How are you doing, Matt?
2: I'm doing great. How are you, Ben?
4: I am pretty good. So yeah, I've been hoping uh, to um, you know to uh, to get you on for uh, for a while. Uh, been uh, you know been a fan of a lot of what you've put out for uh, for years, uh, and I thought you know one of the most interesting. You know, things that uh, you know that we could talk about would be, um, you know, would be socialism. Since I I know you've um, you know you've written a decent amount, you know, over over the years about how sort of um, you know realistic. Um, You know, we could realistically envision, you know, some, you know, something that we would think of as a post capitalist society coming, you know, coming about or working, which is something that I I think historically a lot of people on the socialist left haven't, you know, haven't really said nearly as much about as they as they should, like they're very vague about it. So do you want to kind of start us off with like how you like kind of generally think about the issue?
2: Yeah, you know, as a kind of one-on-one starting point, what I would usually do is say, first things first, let's distinguish uh, the welfare state from, from socialism, right? The welfare mm-hmm. state is a, a system of, of programs to provide for various populations or to provide health care, provide education. Um, those are benefits, That's not socialism, right? Socialism Mm -hmm. is a separate thing that deals with uh, how production is organized in society, specifically, you know, who's going to control and own companies for the most part, right? The productive entities that organize production day to day. And so, you know, under the capitalist model, you have a kind of shareholder capitalist firm where you have, uh, you know, there's this company and at the top of the company, you have shareholders who own the equity they appoint board members those board members appoint a ceo the ceo manages the company primarily with a goal of trying to make as much money for the shareholders And what we're trying to do is switch out essentially that corporate governance arrangement and create a different corporate governance arrangement where and this is where things obviously start to spiraling in lots of different directions and where you get a lot of the fighting. (laughs) But uh, broadly speaking, we want to replace this shareholder class with uh, some other constituency, whether that's society, whether that's the workers in each firm. Whether that's uh, you know some combination of the above, we're trying to replace that shareholder group with another group um, that we think of as, as as representing you know the proper socialist constituency who should actually operate ownership and control and make these productive decisions and also benefit from from production.
4: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, I guess just to go back to the first thing that you that you said about socialism and, and the welfare state, I mean, one way you might think of this is that, like, one of the core things that socialists have always objected to about current economic arrangements is um, that people are dependent on, um, you know, dependent on markets for things that maybe they shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't have to be um you know and some of which might bleed into sort of social democratic welfare state concerns but some of which has to do with uh with class divisions with with the idea that we shouldn't have a uh, a class of people who who own the you know means of production by which we presumably always mean something much broader than what people are typically think you know thinking of when they use the word production you know the means of production and stuff like that and um distribution, exchange, extraction, uh, all that stuff. And then um and then uh the a class of people who have to to work for them, right? You know, that the one um you know one traditional, you know, socialist uh, objection to uh to capitalism is that you have to um, you know, in order to make a living, you know, you have to, you know, submit yourself to uh to to a, a capitalist, you know, with by like signing an employment contract with them. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I noticed somebody in the, in the chat asked about, you know, the sort of caring more about production or distribution and like one way you might think about this as well. Look, one of the things we object to about capitalism is that we hate the distri- kind of distribution it gives rise to. We, you know, we, we think it's like a really bad distribution, but you might think that that's downstream of, or at least partially downstream of the means of production, being sure. of our population
2: well it's important also to just you know and that this can be a little cutesy but distribution uh the word would apply to different quantities so usually when people say production or distribution they after the word distribution they're implying income or consumption right? But obviously also ownership is distributed and control is distributed. So in a way, it's all an objection to distribution. <laughs> it's just different quantities. The socialists will tend to focus more on control and ownership. Um, and and there's a whole other group of people uh, who maybe are less concerned about that or, and are interested in income and final consumption, you know. And there's overlap right. as well, of course. So
4: yeah, I mean, you might also think that, like, okay, you know, one of the, you know, you can look at the problem of um, income and final consumption being being distributed in a really horrible, inegalitarian way, and say this is at least partially caused uh, by the uh, by ownership and control being being distributed in a in a terrible way. That if if uh, you know that if if Amazon were owned by uh, the state or it were owned by or it were a worker co-op or like any number of other arrangements that'd be really different from the from the existing one you wouldn't have like jeff bezos getting so much of the income that's generated by amazon that he could do things like go into space
2: yeah absolutely yeah i mean because ownership is going to determine a couple of things one who gets the profit share of the firm and capital income which flows out to owners is usually about 30 percent of all income Um, And right now it's flowing mostly to the top 10%, like overwhelmingly. So if you capture that, which you would in a socialist economy, however you exactly organized it, then you're going to have a more equal society. And then like you point out, the way that they use their levers of control uh, can also Mm -hmm. cause inequality through Determining, for instance, how income is distributed inside a firm among workers, whether top executives are paid, you know, 10 times as much, five times as much, 100 times as much, whatever, right, that that's also being being decided by the controller. So okay. in in part, I suppose you could, you know, bring in other factors, but
4: Fair enough. Uh, Jake, do you want to uh, do you want to jump in, jump in with anything before we move on to the next part of this?
3: Well, yeah, unless this is the next part. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've listened to your your podcast, big fan of the show, by the way. But uh, yeah, um, I have an idea of where you might be on this, but you're mentioning that there's two camps, right, who care, uh, you know, on which side, like, like where we're focusing our efforts as socialists. So I was wondering which camp you describe yourself as part of.
2: Yeah, and I guess there I was really thinking more, saying like conceptual camps. Mm -hmm. Um, In practice, uh, you know, if you in the history of socialism, I think most socialists have been motivated by egalitarian uh, impulses one way or another. Obviously some will deny this and you know we can go into the sort of psychoanalysis of why they deny this and maybe they're sincere, I don't know. But even, even if you take them for what they are, most people who have called themselves socialists clearly are strongly motivated by uh, uh, an egalitarian sort of political ethos. And I think that ethos really pushes you in both directions, right? You need egalitarian distributions of consumption and income as well as ownership and control. You're trying to get egalitarian distributions across across the board. I would say where you have seen some distinction is uh, with groups of people that Rawls would call welfare state capitalists, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who uh, only concern themselves with uh, sort of achieving um, some kind of egalitarian final distribution of income and do not care at all about um, how ownership and control is organized, um but none of those people you know that's that's no nobody here no none of the intra left I feel like tends to to be in that group that would be sort of like your center center left i guess or sin, you know um dims, but even they I don't know even they are not maybe that far left even which is funny um to think about but but yeah, these are conceptual groups for me, I say all of the above. And I also think the welfare state is an important institution, even in a socialist economy. You would want to have a welfare state, so.
4: Yeah, which is, um, I mean, I guess, I guess theoretically, I mean, like a logically possible combination of positions somebody could hold would be socialism, yes, welfare state, no. But like, I, yeah, I, I, I called that
2: a, uh, I coined that desertist socialism in one of uh, the posts I wrote a long time ago and i said i don't know anyone <laughs> i've had to invent this term because i've never actually seen it but you could imagine a society in which they were saying look it's almost randian in its sort of completeness the workers must get it all and i mean that quite literally if you are disabled <laughs> if you're you know too old to work oh, i'm sorry you're out of luck you know so yeah, this, right.
3: this is kind of a, like an open take sphere that someone could adopt. Like yeah, it's to, like, in, it's in the advocate. set
2: of possible positions, but I have not seen anyone really just fully sitting commit. out there waiting
3: for somebody to someone actually advocate, to take it. I think. Yeah. Actually <laughs>
1: advocate
4: it. But yeah, I mean, I think there are people who have said things that taken literally would uh, entail that, but I don't think any of them actually like sort of thought through the implications. Like yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so like historically famous example would be in the uh, the you know. Congress that started what would become the German Social Democratic Party, the uh uh the uh the people, the uh the faction around LaSalle had this this program that got adopted, the Gotha program that famously that has this line in it about how workers should get the full products of their labor. And one of, you know, Karl Marx and critique of the Gotha program, one yeah. of his big objections to that is hold on, guys really right like because because what about you know i mean that's one of his examples he uses some you know he's writing before the welfare state as we know it exists so he uses some phrase like poor relief right you know but like yeah. what about that right what about schools and hospitals what about building new factories
2: yeah 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 no he's saying uh first things first we got to put money aside for administration we got to put money aside to replace the worn out machines and then though he doesn't use the term he's like then of course we have to put money aside for the welfare state and then only after that should workers get paid. That's actually how he presents it in his critique uh, which I you know that's always a fun one to throw in the face of certain kinds of uh, of people online. I don't really know what to do with with him being like of course the the welfare state would take priority <laughs> over worker wages in in a final system but
3: Look yeah cuz some people kind of are uh, some camps are sort of looking down on redistribution, right? Like of income and, and the welfare status, just this like social democracy, right? That doesn't have to do with like real communism or is that, is that kind of a tendency that you're well, responding people, to at time. Yeah. People
4: do do think that, like people do say that, but even there, even people who say that, I think would still say that like under whatever they would consider to be real socialism, like we're, we're still gonna like, like it's it's not like, children and disabled people don't get any sort of consumption right
2: yeah and i think i think you have a couple of tendencies there one you got people who just don't think about it you know and they think because there's this definitely there's this thought that you know the welfare state only exists to really patch up the problems caused by low wages you know and so you fix that and you you fix the problem it's like no i you know that we kind of that's a thing that sort of circulates in the society, that's just not really true, right? I mean, unless you mean like literally like zero wages, because there's a lot of, most people who are receiving benefits have zero to no wages, right? Because they're disabled or old or whatever. Um, you've got that problem. You got people who haven't thought just haven't thought through it all. You, then you do have a somewhat more sophisticated take. That is, it's kind of like, well, the welfare state is this ameliorist class compromise project, um, and I, it, that then bleeds into this kind of accelerationist almost tendency to be like, this is really preventing us from getting a real hardcore revolution because it, it takes so many of the edges off the system. Um, so.
4: Right. Although even there, I mean, that's presumably like we're, we're having, if we're, um, you know, if you're going to say we shouldn't have, you know, we shouldn't have social security because then we won't have a socialist revolution, presumably like after the socialist revolution, there'll still be some sort of equivalent of social security. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's an order. It's an order of events. It needs to happen after, you know, we only get the old age pension after that's, that's when we need to implement, I suppose. Yeah,
3: till we, we, we need them for the army now. Uh, yeah, I don't the know.
2: People. That's that is a weird example. It's like, well, but th- these people are defined by their um, <laughs> diminished physical uh, capacities. So I don't know that they're great agents of you know guerrilla war and whatnot. But there is that.
4: Uh, so uh, okay, so thinking of uh, so okay, so there's the the welfare state piece. And then there's the, uh, then there's the like what happens to the, um, the means of production piece, Mm. right? So, uh, do you want to, do you want to talk a little bit more about what, what your view is about that part?
2: Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think, I, I view uh, I wrote a piece a long time ago called Identifying Socialist Institutions in Socialist Countries which is another way to try to avoid the, another trap that you fall into you know the first trap being conflating the welfare state with the socialist control and ownership and then the second is getting too mixed up with uh, whether an economy or a country or a society is socialist Versus, to my mind, a much m- more useful way to talk about it, which is whether a particular institution is socialist, uh, a particular yeah. company, a particular productive unit. And so what defines whether in a unit of production is, is socialist, that would be you know mostly oriented around who owns and controls it. Um, so to give some concrete examples, uh, yeah. the public schools are a good example, I think, of uh Productive units that are organized socialistically in a conventional public school system you it's set up just like any other firm I mean in a kind of structural sense except uh, you have a school board that's elected by the local people Mm. Mm -hmm. instead of uh, a corporate board that's elected by shareholders and then go out to seek a CEO that then is trying to make money that they can get and kick out to shareholders so by just kind of toppling the shareholders and replacing them with voters You now have this productive unit um, that is, I would say, a socialist institution. Um, And, you know, you can go on and on down the board. Another example. So usually people would call that a general government service. Like Mm -hmm. in the OECD classification, that would be like one form, right? It's Because it is production. It's not just sending money out to people. You are actually organizing a productive service and it's being organized this way. And then you have this other form which is called a state-owned enterprise which is very similar to the general government service except the users pay more of a fee so Mm -hmm. the Postal Service would be an obvious example you know you pay your stamps but there is no external owner of the Postal Service It's owned by the federal government they have a board the boards appointed by the president which is confirmed by the Senate and on and on right um, the Tennessee Valley Authority is another example. Amtrak is another example. Public utilities throughout the country, of which there are hundreds, thousands, you know, depending on how you all add it up, is the same mm-hmm. thing. We've got lots of public electric utilities, public water utilities. They all kind of structure the same way. Um, And then beyond that, you have the social wealth fund approach, where instead of kind of setting up each entity as being 100% state owned, you create a fund with money, very much like a mutual fund or a pension fund, and you go out and you kind of buy dispersed assets and disperse control over existing firms. And then I would say the last one is the worker co-op kind of model where the workers in each firm would, uh, would become the shareholders, and then they would appoint the board, and then off you go. So it's all kind of about replacing the shareholder and replacing how the board is elected. And if you replace them in certain kinds of ways, I would say those are socialist institutions, and we're just trying to get, get that as widespread as we can. You know, that's the, my perspective on it, at least.
4: Okay. Yeah. So uh, you said at the beginning of all that, that you think that it's like sort of maybe a less productive question. what counts as a, uh, a socialist country as opposed to, to socialist institutions? Cause uh, you just want to, um, you know, you just want to promote socialist institutions as much as possible. And, you know, what, what, what counts as having promoted them so much that it, it's a socialist country now is sort of a, um, is sort of a secondary question. But, I mean, it is maybe worth lingering on that for just a minute because, um, I mean, I think that intuitively there is this kind of concept that people can have uh, of, you know, having like, okay, economies in general are, you know, almost invariably, you know, mixed economies of, of one kind or another, um, you know, like for you know most of the history of feudalism, there were non-feudal institutions, you know, go, going on, right? There were there were like free towns and stuff like that. Um but, you know, but we think, you know, we think of maybe I think like we we would think of like, you know, I don't know, the United States is an easy example as a capitalist country because we think like capitalist economic institutions like are dominant in a certain way in the in the economy. Uh, whereas when we're thinking about a socialist future, I mean, I don't necessarily, um, it doesn't bother me necessarily if, uh, if I sort of imagine a society that's everything that I dream that it ever could be. If like, there are, you know, I don't know, like uh, there are like small amounts of wage labor going on here and there. Cause like, it doesn't really, you know, like if you have like a um i don't know a podcast right you know that that could be like well you know doesn't really you know it doesn't really make but you know it's like it could be that like you have like you know there's like one guy is working for it and it's like three hours a week you know and is, is this really you know like like how how are you going to organize that right and and so, you know and and this, so
3: this, this hits close to home this
2: example the sole proprietor <laughs> I- exception
4: yeah let's call him jake the uh, the guy who works the <laughs> podcast but uh but you know our character and our example but yeah um you know so it's like like but that's maybe doesn't bother me that much if it's like if it's like a small enough part of the economy that like people don't really um depend on sort of traditional capitalist wage labor as the sort of uh the thing you have to do in order to in order to to make a living I mean is is that? I, I would be I would be curious about how you think about like those sorts of of examples like maybe that the the question the sort of like what would count as like you know all right life is imperfect but what would count as like a sort of reasonable degree of success in uh, in in achieving an economy that's dominated by the institutions you want to dominate it.
2: Yeah, you know it's it's a hard line drawing problem. I've I've tried to uh, you know figure out where other people have drawn this in the past. Um, I actually asked Brad DeLong this question a while ago, and he told me that uh, it would need to be that sixty five percent of GDP was organized so through these productive, like you know, through institutions in that way, and I was like, you know what, if you add up Norway, it's like, it's like 54, like it's really close. <laughs> um, and Lane Kinworthy actually just wrote a book about democratic socialism. Um, and I think he used 60%, um, but I think he was using um, a percentage of employment. So not percentage of GDP. So sixty percent of workers were in those firms, uh, those socialist, more organized institutions. So, y- you know, um, uh, you know, we really want to hit that binary classification. It's very right. hard to do, and that's. And I'm not even against doing it. I think you're right, of course. Like uh, we can identify that some societies have more of their systems organized this way than others in the u.s is much more organized uh, in this sort of private ownership way and then other countries are are less so um and you know we're moving in that direction i don't know how you ever get over any particular line um but i also think that there are some practical benefits to this kind of approach which is that these questions that you were hitting upon which is well what do we do about each and every productive unit Mm. it's kind of you can push those way down the line and say well there's a lot of low-hanging fruit where it's very clear how you could socialize you know if you wanted to socialize walmart i mean it would be as easy as is just buying out the shares you know and using taxes on the rich to uh, finance that kind of thing and now you've got that and that's really not a that's an easy easy lift like uh, no one's going to be really all that I say perturbed if you uh, knock off the Waltons and now you have a publicly owned Walmart that otherwise, you know, is operating somewhat similarly. Um, and you could go down the line and you find your you're 50, 60 percent of the way there with stuff that's really not all that controversial before you start getting into some genuinely thorny issues around. Um, you know, podcast. You are focused on the fact that, well, there, there. It's not an employee kind of relationship, mm-hmm. but an even bigger issue there is a, is a personal expression, right? Um, we don't want purely state-owned media. I wouldn't imagine, mm-hmm. um, so we want to allow some in the creative arts. We want people to be able to probably do some things privately, you know. Um, mm-hmm. so.
4: yeah, no, for sure. I mean that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you you could have. Um... I mean you could of course have like media, you know, co-ops I mean, Co-ops, it's, yeah. it's it's not like those don't already exist, you know, that that, that sort of that takes away maybe some of the uh the, the freedom of expression uh worry. But uh but even with you know even with co-ops, like uh I don't know, I remember seeing a uh I think um, you know, like there is like a little bit of a uh I mean maybe it's not worth Dwell in too much on these sort of line drawing questions, but I mean, like there are, but you know, but there is, um, I think, like any sort of um, realistic co op certainly actually exist in co ops. Uh, don't like, um, you know, like don't offer like membership to like everybody who like, you know, I mean, if they if they like advertise, they need somebody to help come in and help out for two weeks. Right. You know, they don't vote a member of the co-op because they did
2: that. Well, and, and, you know, if you wanted to start your own media thing, I mean, I guess you could, by law, require that as you're getting bigger, it needs to be a co-op. But if I can't get into one of the existing media co-ops, but I have something that I would like to publish, you know, I should probably be able to publish that on my own to the extent that that's possible. Right. Um, So what would that be? You know, a, a post, I guess. But.
4: Yeah right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could also. Uh, I think you could also maybe have. Um, you know, I I think. I mean, this is something I was thinking about a little a little bit last year when the uh, the uh, the current affairs uh, blow up happened, and the sort of initial way that was represented was that it was about you know turn it into worker co op or not. I think the more I saw of the. You know, he said, she said of that, the more it seemed like, OK, there are like six people who have, you know, full time jobs here and like five of them have board seats anyway. So it's like the actual gap between what existed and that was like a little bit unclear to me. But like stepping back a little bit from the specifics of that case and just thinking about the more general um, issue, in the abstract, I mean, I I can see maybe. In some cases like that, uh, or like, you know, it doesn't even have to like, that's a political example, but I mean, it could even like be like, uh, we could think about like artistic ones with, uh, it's like, I don't know, like a movie, right. You know, do you, uh, yeah, do you yeah. it, it, it might be, there might be some advantage to, to give certain kinds of d- dictatorial power to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to like one person, uh, in, um, uh in a movie production scenario but even there maybe there are ways to sort of separate out this like kind of uh creative control from like you know general business decisions
2: yeah absolutely no i think yeah and, I, and these uh pieces of the firm they mm-hmm. they can be split into different sections and that that goes into another um part of this debate i guess um and where people divide on different things right so Ah, uh, for example, you know, in my preferred system, you know, some people are real into worker co-ops, you know they're real that that's like the be-all end all. i'm I'm more mm-hmm. lukewarm on them. And, and instead, I will say, well i'm I'm actually more interested in state-owned enterprises and social wealth mm-hmm. funds and I guess general government services, but those are very similar to state-owned enterprises. Mm-hmm. And you know the way they'll come back is they'll be like, well, You know, that'll just be the state kind of dictating what happens to the workers in the firm. And now it's that sort of like a state capitalist almost, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. just recreating the problem. And then you can come back and you can say, well, look, actually, right, we can kind of hybridize all of this. Right. So Mm -hmm. the state could be the owner and then the state could control a certain amount of the board seats, meaning that they get to appoint people um, to be on those seats two-thirds half whatever and then the workers in each firm could control some of the board seats so maybe they get to appoint a third of the wor- of of the board um, and then separately so separate from just like top executive control you also have the question of workers wages and conditions that doesn't necessarily need to be something that goes through the board that can be mm-hmm. something that's negotiated through a union even in a in a state-owned situation so you would have you know state ownership you'd have a mixed board appointed by both the state and other entities especially workers in the firm then the working conditions would be hived off into a a union contract negotiated by a sector union Um, and then in each like establishment little workshop you would have like your union steward and they would do certain kinds of things and so you know you can kind of disperse it out into different entities and chop it up and, and you know get what you want out of it. Um, of course, what I'm describing basically describes, you know, the, the Nordic, the Nordic model, you know, in, in those countries, the workers are entitled to appoint up to a third of the board, the wages and conditions are set with sector agreements, and there's a lot of state ownership. Um, that seems to work well, and you can see, it's not like an all or nothing. It's kind of a, a mixture of uh, state ownership and kind of co-op style power, you know? Mm-hmm.
4: Jake, was there something you want to throw on?
3: Oh, yeah. Um, well, we have one thing is we have this question, which I think we might want to get to. But uh, first, I was just thinking of if you could speak a little more on why you're less hot on the worker co op model versus the, the, the state owned enterprises.
2: Yeah, you know, and I mean, I'll preface this with, you know, I'm not here to to go after the co-op people. You know, (laughs) Um, there are some ideas on the left that I find misguided enough to spend time on, but this is not one of them. I don't think it's all that misguided. It's just among the options, uh, not not my my favorite one. So here are a couple of the issues with it, right? So first, um, workers, in reality, workers don't work at the same firm for their whole life or even necessarily long periods of time. So like your average worker, by the age of 50, they've worked 11 different jobs. And, you know, maybe in a co-op world, that would go down some uh, to eight or seven or whatever. Um, But it's not clear to me that when workers kind of situate themselves in the economy, that they actually situate themselves in firms. Like that that's kind of like, what they identify with and they certainly move between firms and we should encourage workers to move between firms you know if a job opens up in a in another firm that you're you're good at and you would be a good candidate for it it behooves everyone if you move over to that firm Um, but the kind of co-op model where you are a worker owner of the firm you happen to be in uh, really kind of frustrates that sort of mobility Um, what i would say is in my opinion workers tend to uh tend to identify, and maybe this might even be changing, but historically they will identify with their trade or with their sector, right? So you might have someone who's an auto worker, um, and but they're willing to work at all sorts of different automobile companies. It doesn't really matter. or. I remember when I was in the machinist union, uh, there were aerospace workers. I mean, when I worked for the machinist unions, there were aerospace workers that would hop between the different aerospace companies, no problem. Um, and they, you know, they, they kind of had an identification as an, an aerospace worker in the sector, but not really with any particular firm. And this actually is reminds me of the Swedish situation, because when the Swedes were gonna, with the Meidner plan, they were gonna go full-blown kind of socialism. They were gonna do that on the sector level. So not worker co-ops in each firm, but the, all the workers in each sector were going to own all the firms in each sector, um, which mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense to me. Like if you're going to do it non-governmentally, um, the other issues are uh, firm firm boundaries, like company boundaries, are are actually um, kind of arbitrary. Um, You know, it just kind of depends on how you want to construct your firm, how much of it you do in-house and how much of it you outsource. So one example I like to use on this is cafeteria workers in tech companies. So you can have like Google and Twitter, they're side by side. Um, They both have their little cafeterias that everyone likes to talk about. Well, one of the companies, the cafeteria workers may directly work for the company, like let's say Google. And then the other one, the cafeteria workers. It's an outsourced thing. They work for Aramark or whatever. We, we, so whether whether you work for Google or whether you whether you work for Aramark, you know, is very very thin decision-making that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but it would have a huge impact on um, what you get to vote on and what your, like, dividend share of the economy would be, right? If you got to be a Google worker instead of an Aramark worker, then now you're really, you're making big bucks. Um, and, that, and another related point is just that, um, you know, firms their income like their capital income which is what we're trying to redistribute their profit shares are driven by things that have in many cases little to do with the kind of mix of workers they have I guess another way to put it is different firms have different capital intensities right so in some industries especially like primary sectors like natural resources or even manufacturing you the workers are all each worker is backed by a ton of machinery and For that reason, that firm can be quite profitable. And so the workers in that firm, you know, in a co op world, they now get their wages plus this massive profit that is related to the machines that are backing them. Um, But then you have a personal services company where there's not a lot of capital backing the worker and there's not a lot of profit. Razor thin, you know, you hear about restaurants or retail, one, 2% margins, very low Mm -hmm. margins. and that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense right cuz it's not really that the worker in the in the factory is like all that different from the worker in like the retail mm. firm it just happens to do with the kind of industry they're in so i could go on and on you know but it it's to me not 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 an ideal way to to organize it for lots of different reasons so
4: yeah, I, I did want to. Uh, I did want to jump in on that a little bit. I mean, thinking about this. Um, so you know, if one one objection is, uh, and you know, I actually agree with a lot of uh, of uh, of what you said. You know, in terms of thinking about uh, plurality of uh, of socialist institutions, and um, you know, thinking that, you know, some of them uh, might be, you know, might be more appropriate for, you know, for some things than, uh, you know, than others. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, maybe at the intersection of sort of uh, socialism, properly speaking, and, uh, and you know, welfare statism and the way you were cutting it up earlier, like I don't, I wouldn't particularly want like a worker co-op, you know, health insurance company. I don't, I don't think that'd be better. You know than uh, a <laughs> regular uh, a regular private health insurance company. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like that to uh, I'd like that to be uh, be directly state owned and you know provision outside of the market. But um, but but I I did want to push on on the sort of point about uh, I guess like sector to sector or even company to company and kind of an egalitarianism as as a worry about uh, co ops because. You know, when you were kind of listing off what you'd see as socialist institutions earlier, um, you know, we talked a lot about co-ops, talked about um, you know state-owned enterprises like the post office, and um, and you know whatever general government services. But anyway, whatever state state-owned enterprises that uh, that that aren't charging their uh, their users at the uh, at the point of use. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but one that you just kind of mentioned very briefly was uh, social wealth funds uh, where they, well, actually, let me, let me just, before I even go on and ask the question I wanted to ask, just because different people might have different levels of familiarity with what you're talking about there, can could, could you just like talk about that for a minute?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, a social wealth fund is like any uh, investment fund kind of on, on the outside. Um, so a bunch of money comes into the fund and they go out The fund managers go out and just buy equity, bonds, real estate, just like any other fund would. Uh, What's novel about it is that the fund is publicly owned and that the uh, return on the fund is able to be used for public purposes. Alaska has probably the most interesting version of this in the world right now. They take uh, royalties that they receive on oil and gas exploration. They go out, they buy the diversified portfolio of bonds and stocks and real estate and uh, that portfolio generates a return, and they just send that return out as a check to every Alaskan. Uh, everyone gets an equal dividend each each uh, year so yeah that's that's the basic thrust of it um, and it becomes like a socializing vehicle because mm-hmm. if you buy enough of the stock and the bond and the and the bonds and the real estate of the world like eventually you you have it all or you have ten twenty thirty percent of it you know and and that becomes a very substantial amount of of social ownership so
4: yeah so this is so this is what i wanted. was a little bit curious about because certainly if we're thinking of socials, well social wealth funds as a socialist institution in themselves and this is like a form of social ownership then certainly any concerns uh well okay i, I think maybe i know how you'll, you'll answer it, but i am curious right and you know certainly on the face of it right the concerns about uh, about um, you know inequality between sectors or, or, or businesses are you know definitely going to apply at least as much to uh, to company you know working for uh, you know people who work for different companies that you know all might have a certain chunk of the company you know owned by social wealth funds or maybe even if we're thinking about a really distant socialist future here. I don't know. Maybe like various competing so you know social wealth funds that are all ultimately owned by the government, or like maybe even the only thing that owns you know shares of companies. But even so, uh, even if that was the case, to the extent that at least part of people's uh, income comes from from wages, uh, you know, you'd still presumably have pretty considerable uh, inequality between people who, you know, work for corporations with like tighter or less tight uh, profit margins, even if those were all owned by you know various uh, social wealth funds.
2: So the unequal distribution of wages is right. not uh, is not resolved by the social wealth fund. The social wealth fund, uh, resolves the unequal distribution of capital income, mm. um, and that's a that's a a, a unique it's that's a very big uh, win <laughs> for it, uh, but it does not solve the other problem. Um, so. I mean, not directly. I suppose, in a way, now if you get big enough, the social wealth fund is able to exert so much influence over the board, and, and you know, then it can start making headway as a like real social owner that starts making uh, judgments like this. Like in Norway, they have uh, they have these guidance uh, letters and memos that they put out that indicate how they're going to vote on things and what they're going to vote for when shareholder resolutions come up. So a lot of Companies, I think most companies, I don't know if this is a regulatory thing, but they have like say on pay, meaning that the pay of the CEO and a lot of top executives is, does have to be ratified by the shareholders, not just the board. Um, and they put out guidelines saying, look, we're not going to vote for a CEO pay package if it you know, exceeds A, B, and C, and they have all these rules. And, and they regularly vote against pay packages um, that are presented to them. Now they're not a big enough fish, you know, to swing the elections typically. Um but, you know, you could imagine well, if they got big enough, now you you have a real problem on your hands because you need them to vote for these pay packages. So
4: Yeah, no, that's yeah, that sounds nice. Uh so okay, I I want to like one thing I I think maybe when you're kind of envisioning like okay, here's how Social wealth funds in Nordic countries, you know, work right now, and right now they don't have they don't control the like bulk of these companies, or whatever. So, so what they want isn't necessarily decisive. But then we could imagine extrapolating forward um, a version, you know, a version of them that did. And I guess that that gets at the other thing I wanted to ask about uh, social wealth funds because I think sometimes uh watching or reading you talk about this, I'm a little bit unclear about whether these are thought of like mostly as a as a sort of transitional thing, as like a kind of means to the end of increasing state ownership or as like what in the long term you'd want state ownership to to look like, right? And, you know, like like is it that we have um, you know, I don't know, social wealth fund, you know, buys up, you know, buys up Walmart until it's majority uh, until it has a majority of, uh, of the shares and then it just like that it you know Walmart just eventually like is operated the way the post office is or is it that the uh, or is it that we're really imagining a version of socialism where at least for large chunks of the economy the you know I'm not saying it's not a significant difference but like the the biggest structural difference between just really corporate capitalism would just be that a different entity is owning the shares
2: right and that and that the the profit gets redistributed to everyone in society and all that stuff so the way you know you'll be surprised of course but uh you know i like uh how i've seen finland and norway uh organize this uh a little bit so you know they have i was reading their state ownership documents of course like you do and 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 i was very interested in the way that they've organized some of this stuff so have each of them have a portfolio of state-owned enterprises um, which are fully so like the post office type thing and it's not like three or four it's like 70 or 80 <laughs> you know um, and then they also have social wealth funds um, they have domestic social wealth funds um, Norway has the international one um, and one of the interesting questions is well what's going on here like <laughs> why don't you just pick one or the other or like why don't you just sell the state-owned enterprises and use that? to buy shares. Like, you don't need both. It seems weird to have these, like, in parallel, right? And the answer that they give is that the state-owned enterprises that they own typically have uh, dual purposes. Um, So, you can think about some companies uh, in a socialist future where it only has a kind of commercial purpose in the sense that it's just kind of like producing a certain thing for people to buy. It doesn't really have any other, like, specific social goal you know just stamping out plastic spoons you know like that ah, what do we we got something we're trying to do with the plastic spoon maker not really like just make the spoons make a profit send the profit up we'll use it to send checks to people or fund healthcare or whatever but then you have other firms where you have a social purpose in mind. It's not just the commercial purpose. And for those, you want to put those in the in the state-owned enterprise portfolio, right? Because then you want to have, have a much stronger hand. And so the post office would be a good example because the, so, the post office has a kind of purely commercial purpose in some cases, just moving boxes around, you know? Um, but it also has a social purpose in that it's required to uh, make sure that every address in the country can, like, move stuff around at a... A fair, reasonable price, or whatever, and so it undertakes money-losing operations in in large parts of the country, especially in rural parts of the country, to satisfy that social obligation. And so, for there, it makes sense. Like we want to have a state-owned enterprise where we can kind of, you know, move the dials a little bit more, have have more of a hands-on control, because we have not just the commercial purpose, but also the social purpose. When you start moving into firms that only have kind of commercial purposes, then that might make more sense for a social wealth fund type arrangement because for the most part that's going to be a much more hands-off affair where we're not you know leave it to the union leave it to the co-determined board to kind of work out day-to-day stuff you know
4: right that makes sense so um and in this case you know so and and in this sort of um, you know, I don't know, ideal state version of this uh the uh, the you know the co-determined board so just to be clear about that we're talking about a board of uh, of directors that has uh has some people who are on it who are um, who are appointed by the owners of the company who would ultimately be um social you know like
2: the social wealth fund bureaucrats would put out put together a slate of directors you know
4: okay and <laughs> but then you'd also have the uh uh, but then, like also the the union or something would 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 also have uh, would also have like get to pick a certain number of board seats
2: right and then the majority of the board would have to vote on any given thing you know so for the most part you'd need both, especially since the social wealth funds appointees are probably not like these are not voting as a slate you know it's just individuals you know so
4: right um. I guess if you, if they were, yeah, I mean, if they were voting as a slate, that might be a reason to, to want there to be like a plurality of funds that might, um, that might have like, you know, so I don't know, future, future socialist Walmart, you know, might be, uh, you know, might be like owned by multiple entities, which were all of themselves ultimately owned by the government, but there might be some reason to, uh, to, you know, not consolidate them all into one big thing.
2: Sure. Yeah, you can also there. You you can go very pluralistic with the board as well. You know, we usually think about the owners and the workers. Some split whether the owners public or private, and then the workers with a co-determined board. There's not, in principle, not any reason why you couldn't set aside a board seat for the customers of the company or whatever. You know, I've always wondered, and I think I did find eventually there were some school boards that did this. Why don't the school boards set aside one, one seat for the teachers, you know, <laughs> and then one seat for the parents, you know, and then you have the elected, the other six or seven elected. Like, that would be a nice little plural board. Everyone's got a voice on it, and, you know. So y- you can get really creative with the boards. I've actually, there was one proposal, actually, I saw to create, I thought this was a crazy proposal, but it shows the level of uh, creativity you can engage in it, was to create bicameral boards, in each uh company with one of the uh chambers being elected entirely by you know workers and the other chamber elected entirely by the owners and you have to get the majority in each chamber you know so not a majority i mean it would be a majority overall as -hmm. well just by definition but specifically a majority in each chamber and yeah like i said i think that's a crazy idea but it gives you a sense of how how Creative, you can be with the board situation if you want,
4: right? Or certainly, like a, certainly, you could have uh, like people. Uh, you know, presumably, the social wealth funds are by and large operating from higher levels of government, and you, know, you could have you could have people who you know represent the local community in some way. You know that they that who's, who are after all also impacted by the firm's decisions.
2: Yeah, and you know the social wealth funds ultimately you know governed by the elected. Uh, representatives and they have certain interests you know hopefully you know they're not they're wanting to put some people on there that people will like and that will make good decisions you know Um, so hopefully you know you wouldn't see too much jockeying on uh, you know I don't know I don't think it would be too malicious for the most part you know who you're putting on the, the head of the board of some you know mostly insignificant company so right uh jake you
4: um you wanted to uh yeah i think that the i, I was going to ask something that was uh a little bit more uh you know directed at some of the like details of intra left discussion about this and we'll get back to that but the uh but uh but jake i think you you there was a question that you picked out of the chat earlier i think you wanted to say something about it earlier
3: oh uh, no i just uh wanted to give a give a chance to address the question it was about like the anarchist opposition to some of this is like, oh, well, then the state isn't uh, withering away. Uh, obviously, um, you know, there's this is a, a, a big source of, of, of major disagreement amongst socialists. But I, w- I was wondering, like, what you would say to to those folks, both you and Matt, I guess, Matt and Ben, I guess.
4: Yeah. Well, let's let's let the guest uh, jump in on that first.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not withering away. <laughs> I'm fine with that. You know. I you know not to short shrift the the person but you know like that's a quote from from Marx I believe right so uh, mm-hmm. you know we, you could go into what does that mean um, from a like interpretive s- standpoint and I've seen those debates and I'm very tired of them frankly at this <laughs> point but uh, obviously some people will come in and say well by the state. By the state, you know, that, that actually point when he uses that word, he's actually talking about a specific kind of capitalist state, and, and, and that will wither away. And it's not, I don't know, like, who knows? Who knows if it was even fully clear in his, his own head, you know? <laughs> but yeah, I don't have, I, I'm, I'm fine with like a government in elections. And um, when I have, I'm open to alternatives, when I have gone down the rabbit hole of looking into alternatives frankly for the most part i find people re- recreating a state that they don't call a state you know to deal with certain issues uh, around conflict resolution and stuff like that so
4: yeah i mean that, that would pretty much be my position on that i mean i do think um that marx and engels when they talk about it i mean i think engels has a line somewhere where it says Instead of a state, you would just have a sort of neutral administration of things, uh, which, you know, whatever that means. But also, I think that to the extent that I can follow the thought there, it's I I just think they're wrong about that. Right. That they that, um, you know, because I think that um, the idea that like all you sort of that you don't have a state if it's not expressing like class conflict domination of one class over another you just have some sort of and i think like a lot of things a lot of anarchists would say about this are very similar you know you just have some sort of well look maybe there's some kind of coordinating function you still have or something but that's not really a state anymore uh, i think it underestimates the sources of political conflict that come from things other than other than class struggle that, they, that that's like certainly a really important source of political conflict i don't think it's the only one i think that um i think that even in um even in a socialist society that was much more different from uh contemporary capitalism than the one we've been describing right if you sort of imagine that like someday in the future we get really really good at figuring out how to uh to plan things without needing market mechanisms at all Okay, I mean, you're still going to get conflicts between different regions and sectors. You're going to get conflicts about how to use resources. You can do the fun Star Trek you want and imagine, you know, like conflicts about whether to spend resources on like colonizing space or something, as opposed to to spending them on Earth. And like, also, I mean, Matt mentioned conflict resolution earlier, and I I think that yeah, like, um, I I do think that. Um, Look, poverty, or maybe more precisely, the combination of poverty and affluence is probably the main driver of, uh, of violent crime. Uh, I, I actually don't have any doubt about that, that, that it is, but it's not the only one. It's, it's not the only thing that leads anybody to, to act towards acts of interpersonal violence. I mean, like that, that would exist in any society. And I hope the answer to that wouldn't just be sort of personal vigilantism,
2: yeah no certainly um i mean domestic violence is an obvious example where it's uh up and down the income ladder so
4: right and yeah certainly drug abuse i mean i think that it it's again that's definitely um a lot of that is fueled by poverty but also like realistically lots of rich people have drug problems so like that that does suggest that there are other causes of uh of, of that that happen. and then like Again, I could imagine uh, a super egalitarian society where um, where poverty was long since a thing of the past, or whatever. Having intense political conflicts about like how how paternalistic or how libertarian to be about drug abuse, you know, in in that you know that example.
2: Even look at a uh, look at how heated people get about um, what kind of houses people are allowed to build. <laughs> That's <laughs> in our current society, and that that seems like it would. Continue. I think people would still be fighting online about whether you could have a ten-story apartment and how luxurious the finishes should be allowed to be. You know, the
3: oh well, uh, the, the final political fight between NIMBYs <laughs> and yimbies once everything else is <laughs> withered away.
2: That'll be it. That'll be, that'll, <laughs> be, that'll be that's all we'll be fighting about anymore. <laughs>
4: There I'm won't even be landlords thing. anymore. There'll just be they'll just be conflicts about whether to, you know, whether you, you keep the, like, historic neighborhood the way it is or not.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, that would be, yeah, that would be all Nathan would write about it. Current Affairs would just be about preserving all the historical buildings, you know, how important that is. That would all be <laughs> the magazine left. This, but
4: that would be its only cause at that point. Yeah, that's it.
2: Everything else would have been resolved, you know. <laughs>
4: Uh, just out of curiosity, do you actually, like, I, I know some of what you think about the sort of um, contemporary debates about uh, about this and the society that we live in, but I mean, do you have any thoughts about uh, about housing under socialism?
2: Uh, I do, actually. No, I have this idea. Uh, well, it's sort of the social wealth fund, but for housing. Um, I've only floated this a few times, but, you know... Um, uh, Geez, what was his name? Uh, The guy's running for governor now uh, for Texas. And he almost won the Senate race. Do you remember his name? Beto. Yeah, Beto's father in law, who was like a billionaire or whatever, you know, invented the real estate investment trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, you could kind of create a public model for a real estate investment trust. And that would be a way to start. Sucking in properties to bring them into public ownership, houses and housing units. I, I've written about that before, but we published a paper at PPP. One of our first few papers um, actually was targeted at this question because this was a roiling question even then, and we were like, we've got it, we've got a solution that that will you know the left can line up behind, and it would. The paper was called Social Housing for America and it was basically just the idea hey look if we've got these housing shortages um we're not you know there's a tendency that says we don't want the developers you want to put money in developer pockets we don't want put money in landlord pockets there's all these kind of hesitation very easy solution create these uh, new units publicly that will help uh, resolve the supply issue you can also build them however you want if you're worried about all these high-end finishes and whatever you can create some very middle-brow utilitarian buildings. Um, You can cross-subsidize rents um, to have a mixed income type situation. So, mixed income, you know, social housing, solve our supply problem without running into these other issues that, you know, so perturb the left. And, you know, that's actually been one of our most successful papers, at least in terms of Uh, local legislators and campaigners and stuff pick it up and you have to see it all over the place like uh, the big social housing bill that went down in california i mean it failed but the the sponsor there was tweeting that paper it's like a paper from four or five years ago he was tweeting it while he was pushing his campaign and um the i think it was called homes for all or the homes guarantee or something like that that bernie adopted was all kind of source from that paper initially obviously it's not our idea uh social housing has been around for for a very long time but i think we can claim some uh we have some rightful claim for saying we we help inject it into this you know moment so so yeah social housing is where we've we've wound up so
4: fair enough uh, jake is there anything else you wanted to uh you had to bring up here
3: no, I think we could get to. You said you had some of the inter inter left. Uh, yeah. Okay. So to. so I'll
4: I'll just go ahead and do the the self indulgent thing because we've we've done all of the uh, the sort of um, the kind of like big questions that I think um, you know I, I think most people are most likely to to ask. So uh, uh, is you know thinking about sort of specific ways that um, that models of, um, of of socialism or you know something that we might think of with whatever caveats about how vague this is as a fully socialist society, you know, might work. Uh, one that I think that, uh, that I'm very fond of, and I, I think you've been, you know, much more critical of, although I'm, I'm not quite sure, um, you know, is the kind that, uh, that David Schweikart, uh, proposes in, um, in his book after capitalism, which roughly says, uh, well, you know, I mean, I, I, think Schweikart, you know, thinks that there are some things that should just be like conventionally state owned and whatever, but like, as far as the sort of uh, market sector of the, uh, of the economy, uh, the, the model that, that he proposes, you'd have um, things that were like really existing co-ops on the firm level that they'd be, they'd be worker, worker owned firms. Uh, but um for a variety of reasons, uh, it's, it's not just that you'd have an economy that was exactly like this one, except somehow, uh, you know, worker-owned firms would be dominant within it, which I actually think would be really hard to, you know, to do for a lot of reasons, but that you'd have, um, but that you'd have state-owned banks uh, that would be, uh, that the sort of uh, would essentially own the physical means of production and kind of rent them out to the, the state-owned firms or a different way of thinking about it is that the state-owned firms would just give like starter capital would just come from grants from state-owned firms, but then, you know, which would be like loans, but you didn't, wouldn't have to pay back the, um, the principal, you know, you just have to sort of do the equivalent of sort of interest payments or a special tax, you know, depending on, uh, on how you thought about it. So, which would be another way I think of, of combining, um, you know, some of the goals that, you know, I, I think, in what you laid out earlier, you were, uh, you were combining that, like, in other words, okay, socialists care about workplace democracy. Uh, but there are also, uh, there are also maybe a lot of reasons that we want the state to have a, a, you know, a bigger role in the economy, as opposed to just, you know, just different groups of individual workers. Uh, I'm not sure how good a job I've done in you know, giving people a sense of how this model works. But I mean, that's roughly, that's roughly it. Uh, and I think you've got some criticisms of that, and, and I'm, I'm curious about that.
2: Yeah, I have read that book. Um, what struck me about the book uh, was, as you point out, so I think it, it may be useful to break the question in, down into three questions when it comes right. to sort of socialism, right? And um, it's going to be, one, who gets the profit of each firm, right? Mm-hmm. Number two, who elects the board? We'll just make it simple. And then number three, how are wages and conditions, you know, going to be set? Mm. And one of the the kind of conventional co-op answer was essentially the workers in each firm get the profits in each firm. Mm-hmm. The workers in each firm elect the board, and obviously the workers set their own wages in this. Uh, right. sort of, um, and he comes back and he says. So one of the critiques is going to be, well, should the workers in each firm get the profits of each firm? That doesn't seem quite right because of the different capital intensities and all that kind of stuff, right? There are some firms that have literally millions of dollars of profit per worker and some that only have a few thousand. It's really got nothing to do with the worker. And so he comes back and he says, I'm going to solve that through, I think he calls it a capital tax or something like that. But essentially, each firm is going to be required to send money back up to the central government um that es- essentially approximates the profit it's not going to be their profit um so he, he essentially allows for firms to have super profits that like go mm-hmm. above and beyond what you would kind of predict them to profit based on the kind of firm they are and i suppose that maintains certain production incentives and stuff um but other than the super profits really the kind of main profit is is going to go up to the central government and so in that way he actually modifies the traditional co-op model to make it look like a social wealth fund model mm-hmm. as far as profits go because mm-hmm. the profits are going up to the state-owned banks or to the state-owned fund whether it's an equity share or debt share however you define it the, the profits are going out of the firm mm-hmm. and i think that's a good decision i think that's wise and i also thought that was very confirming when i read it i was like yes okay yes where he sees the problem i see the problem we just kind of went different ways, um, on how to solve it. Um, for who elects the board, it's, it's the workers in each firm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you would just have a hundred percent of the boards, but those workers, because of this capital tax, Mm -hmm. they are constrained by that. So they're operating within the constraints that they have to shovel a certain amount of money out of the firm each year. Regardless of how profitable or productive it is, they got to shovel that money out of the firm. So in a way, yeah, the workers control the board, but they don't control one of the key decisions, one of the key levers that the board usually has some discretion over, right? Because they're being subjected to this capital tax. So, you know... I wouldn't say, well, therefore, the state kind of has a quasi board seat. I don't want to go that far, but like in a way that the, the workers are, are diminished in their ability to really exert control at mm-hmm. the board level. And then when it comes to setting the terms and the wages, it's the same kind of thing. You're still constrained a bit by the capital share that's being shoveled out of the firm. But also on that line, I, don't, I would like to see wages and conditions set sectorally, not set in each firm. So, like I said, you can chop all three of those levels up. Um, to me, the most notable thing was he recognized that you, you had to get that profit out of the firm for, e, for fairness and equality reasons. Um, and so, like I said, in many ways, like if you start from the co-op model and you make a few changes, you wind up in a kind of social wealth fund model and vice versa. Because it's really just about changing these you know discrete questions which you can move all sorts of ways like I said with the board you can go crazy with the board if you want you know
4: yeah I mean so one way of thinking about I mean there, I mean, I think there are a couple reasons maybe for um, the modifications that Schweikart has to like a pure uh, pure co-op model uh, like one of which is about, you know kind of broader socioeconomic equality like you're talking about uh and then another is just as a matter of practicality i don't don't, um like you know if you could sort of i don't know you uh you have a genie in a lamp and you know you and you say okay i'm a socialist what do i you know i care about i care about workplace equality so my wish for the genie is uh is going to be that every company that's you know uh I don't know, sole proprietorship or, or corporation that exists right now is is just going to become a worker controlled firm, you know, like immediately. Then, like one concern you could have about that practically is just like okay, but you know, would that even? Um, how long would that actually last? Like if that just if that just magically happened, if you had to um, uh, just sort of in the course of. Uh, market competition between a bunch of firms, which were all, which were all worker owned, uh, would it, um, as the sort of ups and downs of, of competition uh, happened, uh, you know, if you, you know, like you could, like people would, um, you know, you could see, especially depending on, I don't know, I, I guess, you know, even, even if it were like, even if like the banks especially were just, also their own worker controlled firms, but they were just private firms that were out for profit, whatever uh, that the whether all their incentives would line up in the right way that they would want to like sort of continue to have worker ownership everywhere you know everywhere forever right it might just not be a stable viable thing in the uh, in the long term whereas if you have um, if you have these socialized institutions, these like well not you know these state-owned institutions, that are in charge of giving out the the initial grants you know that that might just be a way of having a sort of more um, more stable way of keeping you know worker ownership and, you know in place in the long term but i mean the um i mean i guess
2: yeah there's a, there is a political i would say this is one of the strongest yeah, okay. cases for co-ops and similar which is that uh, you know, if you have a state-owned enterprise, then, you know, with elections, it's it's easy to undo that. You know, uh, privatization is very easy yeah. to do. Um, but if you have uh, socialized institutions that are not explicitly state-owned, yeah, we can say, in principle, the state could unwind that. But it's a lot trickier kind of thing to do because you've created a worker-owned institution Within the kind of pro- private property parameters of the system, uh-huh. and therefore they would have a hard time, like ban- like getting rid of that, you know, without unwinding the other parts of the system. Um, so one good example of this is the community land trusts, mm-hmm. um, and and Bernie actually, uh, I think he wrote this. I don't know why this is in my head, but I, I I came across this at one point. You know, when he was mayor of Burlington, he helped create a community land trust, which is basically you set aside some land, you put some houses on it. The land is technically owned by like a nonprofit, and they charge a little bit of rent, but really the idea here is to kind of permanently stabilize the price of these homes so the prices don't really go up at all and you can buy them but when you resell them you can only resell them for a certain amount and it just kind of keeps them permanently affordable in a way and you know one question is well why did you set this up as like a nonprofit that owns why not just have the city city of burlington and you know the answer was well we we create this separate institution and it becomes very hard to get rid of it you know the next mayor could could undo our public thing and like sell it off and whatever. But since we created, we chartered a separate corporation that's technically private, you know, and then, then it's kind of insulated from that. I would say that's probably the strongest argument for, you know, these non-government, non-governmental approaches. is just that, you know, they are more insulated from political tides potentially.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think the worry to the worry in the case of, of co-ops, uh, without you know without something like socialized banking backing them up is is not that the government is gonna is gonna somehow come in and you know say you know we're gonna forbid you you know from having a co-op or whatever uh which is you know the sort of thing that like i don't know in my experience libertarians often really like to emphasize hey nobody's stopping you from having a worker co-op uh <laughs> which is which is true right you know that this nobody's gonna pass a, pass a law against having that, you know. of the economy, you know, be, uh, be, be worker, uh, worker co-ops. It's, it's just that there are a bunch of, um, you know, there are a bunch of economic facts that, uh, that prevent you, you know, from, uh, from doing it. But the, uh, but yeah, I don't think the work, the concern would be so much about the state undoing it as just the sort of natural churn of, of, of markets uh, undoing it that as, as people, you know, and around. the workers
2: in the firm. That's all that's actually been a, a, a main a big problem with co-ops historically is demutualization, as they right. call it. If the workers in the firm own the equity in the firm and the firm is doing really well, you know, I think there was like a steel factory I'm remembering that was sort of like this, and you know, we've created a nice fifty million dollar company, but we can't really can't really cash that out. <laughs> unless we demutualize and sell the shares.
4: Yeah. I mean, new, new Belgian Brewing, right? The fat tire, they, they were, um, they were a, you know, I mean, maybe not exactly what people have in mind when you say worker co op, but at least, you know, but at least I think there was a employee stock ownership plan that owned the, owned the whole thing. And that was, and then, you know, whatever. I mean, you can't feel too bad for them. I think everybody got rich, but like they, they sold that to, uh, to, uh, to something else. And so so yeah, I mean I think that's a that's a major concern about the you know that. So I mean I I guess one way of thinking about this would be that if you kind of start from a uh, you know, from a pure co-op model, uh then you end and you end up seeing, okay, we have these problems about institutional stability, we have this problem about um and you know, sure, like I said, you know, right wingers win elections too, but I mean also if you have stuff that leads to lots of social benefits, then the hope would be it's really popular and it makes it hard to uh, to get rid of in the uh, in the long term. But uh, you have the concern about political stability. You have the concern about like large, sectoral or just firm to firm economic inequality. So you can solve that by uh, by having some sort of special capital tax that you know that, that redistributes away. Uh, some of that, you know, some of that capital income. But on the other hand, if you're just starting with regular, um, you know, companies just being owned by the state outright um, on the post office model or being just organized as corporations, but having, you know, all the chunks of those corporations owned by social wealth funds, then you've got the workplace democracy model and, you know, and and the sort of uh, you've got the workplace democracy concern for the yeah. sake of which, you know, in, in your case, maybe you're sort of doing the mirror image of the Schweikart thing there, and say, "Well, okay, let's let's go in and make this a little bit more like a co-op."
2: Yeah, yeah, no, we would. Yeah, the workers would have their power through their union and through co-determination, through board seats. The same way that they kind of have the power in his model mm-hmm. is through board seats, but they have more board seats in his than in a typical co-determination but their board seats are actually more constrained because they have to pay the capital tax and operate within that constraint so you know it's almost more of a question of how many board seats do you want to give them and how do you want to organize the wage bargaining like that's that's you know it's almost like not even a a socialism or not it's just like well how do you want to set those dials you might even come up with different answers for different industries I know in Germany, with their co-determination, some sectors have very, there are some sectors, I think it's the mining sectors, where it's 50-50. The workers get 50% and the owners get 50%, and then if there's a tie, like a government official will break the tie. Um, and then in others, it's like 20% or 30% or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. I think that's really the question for worker empowerment is really almost just how, how many board seats should they get. And also remembering, again, like, do we think that workers in each firm Mm. are they the should they be the sole controller of the firm like we almost start we start from a premise like yeah that would be ideal but maybe we know we might need to change it for practical is that i ideal you know there are people who don't work in the firm who also obviously have a stake in its success and what it's doing how it's producing externalities so
4: yeah i mean one like so all of the the, all of the kind of models that were discussed tonight are ultimately, you know, models. Of what people would think of as market socialism, just meaning that like a kind of socialism where you still have markets, uh, which you know you might, you know, like whether or not you have to have that constraint or not is obviously a huge controversy in itself. But uh, and you might at least think that for for the time being, right? You know, maybe maybe someday supercomputers will deliver us red plenty, and we don't have to, you know, we and we can you know, we could do without that part. Right. But, uh, but maybe for now uh, you need markets. But I mean, even if you do drop that assumption, I mean, even if you're just thinking about like some really, real traditional socialist uh, ideas about how all this um, would work, where somehow or another, there's just state planning that doesn't need to, you know, you don't need to have the sort of feedback loops of uh, what prices people are willing to pay and all that stuff. You could just do without all that. You you still have this tension between two goals that socialists traditionally care about, which are, um, you know, workplace democracy is is something people care about a lot, right? Workers control production, but also something like uh, the idea that as uh, that as a society we should be collectively. Determining the the course of of the economy and you know the course of our collective social lives in a way that it's not under capitalism and you know I don't think that I don't think you have to pick I think those are two goals that actually do matter but like I I do think that there's there's some tension between them I mean any way of of fulfilling you know like like i i think that you probably there are probably at some point some trade offs that you have to have between okay what do you actually want to be controlled by this particular group of workers at this workplace and what do you want to be controlled by society as a whole because it affects everybody
2: yeah absolutely yeah and it's a matter of assigning you know weight you know to each of those people like ultimately in a kind of compromised way you want social control you want worker control where they conflict you have to hash that out and figure out you know how we're going to weigh these kinds of things remembering that workers are also voters in the government as well so they are in a way proportionally represented in that slice in addition to their direct representation on the board um so
1: fair
4: enough uh, Matt, what, uh, what can, uh, where can people find your stuff? You mentioned, uh, PPP earlier, which is a, which is a term, which is an abbreviation that stands for something else in this context that it does in many others. So, uh, want to tell people about that?
2: Yes. Um, I, the think tank, I am the president of, uh, People's Policy Project, which you can go to peoplespolicyproject.org. Um, and then I also have a podcast I do with my wife called The Brunigs, which you can look up on Patreon. So
1: very
4: nice. All right, thank you so much. Thanks. All right, that was uh that was Matt Brigg, uh who uh who I have uh I've been a fan of for uh, for a long time, so it was cool to uh to do this. I called into the call in once, but this is definitely most extended uh, conversation uh we've had, so that was great. Uh Jake didn't care for him, but he uh, he was uh, he managed to uh, he managed to put up a good front. So, uh in uh in a minute, we're going to go to the post game with our uh, good friend, uh, Gene Bajalan, who uh, is, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the uh, uprising in Iran and why Gene is pretty sure that every single Iranian person who thinks they're upset about theocracy and gender apartheid is actually being personally mind controlled by the CIA. I might be getting that wrong. That might not be his thesis, but, you know, we'll find out in the, uh, the post game for patrons. Uh, also, uh, he, um, when he was in Atlanta, he gave me some, uh, some candy from a store in his hometown in the UK. So I'm going to try it in the post game. We're going to find out if it's, uh, it's better or worse than our American candies, like, uh, you know, candy corn. So, uh, that'll be, uh, that'll be exciting, uh, for everybody. But before we go to, uh, to the post game, I do want to uh, I do want to just uh, just plug two things. One is the uh, the live show again in uh, in Los Angeles. So really looking forward to this. This is going to be um, a week from this coming Sunday. So this is going to be on uh, October 23rd at 7 uh, p.m. L.A. time at the Terragram Ballroom in Los Angeles uh, with um, with this show. Uh, jointly sponsored with This Is Revolution and Left Reckoning, which are definitely uh, two of my uh, two of my favorite other left podcasts. Excited to be collaborating with those guys. Also, for anybody who is a fan of the old Weekend Show on uh, on Jacobin, uh, both of the people who are hosts of that, um, Nando Vila and Anna Kasparian, are uh, are going to be uh, are going to be guests on it. So in a way. You know, we're uh, we that's a, that's a four uh, podcast thing. Even if one of them is not operative right now, uh, and uh, and a lot of other, my other favorite people uh, are uh, are going to be there. Uh, Ryan, Varn, uh, Bessner. Uh, so uh, should be a very good time. We're still planning out all the stuff that's there, but you can uh, you can get tickets uh, by following that link uh, in the. Um, uh, in the description uh, for this episode. Uh, meanwhile, uh, if you are um, are not a patron of the show, and if you are a patron of the show, I don't know. Well, everybody everybody involved will hug you in Los Angeles, whatever. We'll uh, you know that's uh, um, or or we'll just you know say thank you as the uh, as the case may be. Uh, but uh, if uh, if you are not a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com/slash/benburgess. And, uh, you can, um, and you can, uh, become a patron for five bucks a month. Uh, and you, uh, you get, uh, those post games after all the regular Monday night episodes, um, every week, uh, sometimes we do, you know, exclu- you know, exclusive, uh, things for patrons or we release things to patrons early. You get access to the discord server, and most importantly, you get our uh, our undying uh, undying love and uh, and appreciation. Uh, and
3: for, uh, I was, yeah. we also say things uh, too spicy for the main show uh, with the with the help of uh, some alcohol at times. So just as a little plug for uh, you know. To, to to find out what, what what Ben really thinks about certain issues, you got to become a patron, right?
4: <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's, it, it gets ugly, but it's all real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are things that we have covered in the uh, in uh, in the post game that we uh, that we that we don't. Uh, we don't yeah, I'm not not
3: being a hundred percent sarcastic. I'm saying it's a, it's a fun time for sure. If anyone's not currently subscribing,
4: <laughs> fair enough. Well. Um, I just heard from Gene that uh, his uh, his baby is asleep, so uh, so we can uh, we can start up the uh, the post game. So if you are already a patron, uh, you should uh, you should see a link to the post game there. Uh, if you are not, no time like the present, and I will see people there in just a moment. Left is best.